0: I want to take a moment and I want to jump right into our message for today. I want to continue with this series called The Meaning of Your Life. As we study through the book of Ecclesiastes and Solomon's awkward challenge or discovery to try to find the meaning of life, we learn some lessons from him that hopefully will make our lives better. But today I want to call this message Tough Questions. Because we all have some tough questions that we have to face in life. I mean, some of the real, more serious, tough questions, like, you know, why do married people start looking like each other the older they get? Yeah, you know, tough questions like that. You know, why do we become our parents even when we swore we never would? Tough questions. There are actually some real tough questions that we're going to look at and that Solomon kind of poses here. Uh, He doesn't give us any answers. He just lobs the the question out there and we have to kind of navigate through it. But as followers of Christ, we need to be prepared to answer the questions that people are asking, especially some of these most difficult questions. And most of the questions that are the three questions I'm going to throw at you today are questions that probably those who are not following Christ would ask more than those who are following Christ. And it's not because they're trying to be antagonistic. It's just they're curious. They want to know. And we as followers need to be able to answer. 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. So we need to be prepared to answer with gentleness and respect. So I'm going to dive right in to these three questions that Solomon poses to the reader. And his purpose is to kind of eliminate the fluff answers that we see on bumper stickers and t-shirts and to get to the real heart of the matter. What is the answer? Because you can't really know the meaning of life until you can answer these questions. So Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse number 16, <clears throat> it says, and I saw something else under the sun in the place of judgment, wickedness was there in the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment, both righteous righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they're like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. Obviously, Solomon's working through some issues here. All right. But he goes on in verse 20, he says, all go to the same place. All come from dust and to dust all return. Who knows? Here's the first question. If the human spirit rises upward and the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. Now, as I said last week, I wasn't taking on this issue of where animals go. And I'm not taking it on today either. <laughs> I'll let you work that out with your own salvation. Okay, uh, But here, Solomon kind of throws this out here. Who knows if human spirits go to heaven and animal spirits go down into the earth? Who knows? And he goes on in verse 22. So I saw that there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. Here's the next question. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? So the first question he throws out there is basically this. What happens after I die? What happens after I die? Now he asked this two different times, and most of us, as parents, we know that when we ask a question twice, it's because either it's such a serious question we want it to make sure we want to make sure it's heard, or we ask it the first time and the question or the answer either was so unbelievable that you you got to ask the question again. Kind of like when you know your kids are you know fighting in the bedroom and you walk in and say, "Hey, what's going on in here?" and they tell you, and you, "Whoa, whoa, wait, what's going on in here?" Kind of like when you know you walk in on your kids, and you know, the they're, they're, they're what's going on in here? Well, we were just pretending to be wrestlers, and I jumped off the top bunk and did a backflip and did a skull crushing elbow smash, and I accidentally hit my brother. Wait, what's going on in here? <laughs> you just, sometimes the answers are so unbelievable, you gotta ask again. Well, here's Solomon, and he asked this question twice: what happens after we die? And in order to really understand. Uh, the answer to this, you got to realize there's really four basic views of death and what happens after we die in the world. There's a whole lot of others, but they can kind of summed up in these four basic views. And the first one is this, nothing, nothing. This is the atheistic worldview, no heaven, no hell, no afterlife, no nothing. We just cease to exist. This group is not necessarily large, but it's a loud group. And because Most polls will show that the majority of people still believe in an afterlife, but any worldview has to answer the questions of origin. Where do we come from? And atheists try to answer this with science, or at least an interpretation of science, because if Christians made the claims that atheists do, they would all laugh at us because they believe a universe just exploded into being with a big bang. And their explanation is that something came from nothing, which isn't really possible Uh, I'm not anti-science, but you can't really have the reaction of a big bang without the action of something else. I'll come back to that in a minute. Thank you very much. All right. The second worldview of what happens after we die is reincarnation. And this is simply where once you die, you come back in another life as a form of something else. And you either are paying for the sins of your former life, or you're trying to correct the sins of the former life, or uh, you're trying to learn the lessons from the former life, but you really don't know what you did in the former life. So you're still trying to live this life for the first time anyway. Uh, So it's kind of, you're stuck in this hopeless cycle. We we met this man on our hike up Mount Kilimanjaro, and he told us that he believed in reincarnation and that because he was hiking alone, he says, I love to be alone. He said, "I, I I believe I was a priest in my former life. Wait a second. Because you like being alone, you made the (laughs) jump through all the hoops to get to, you were a priest in a former life. Uh, Okay, just some people, you just do you. Okay, just do you. But reincarnation is one viewpoint of life after death. Here's the third viewpoint, and that's the skills of judgment. This kind of lumps in a few viewpoints together. But basically, you die, you stand before a deity, and you will be judged like a scale. Your good deeds will be weighed against your bad deeds. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you're golden. If not, things aren't going to be so good. Now, first of all, how do you keep score? How do you know what the score is? Number two, if a governmental system of justice acted like that here in America, then here's what it could look like. Okay, somebody gets arrested for uh, murder. So here's the scale of murder over here. But on this side, you've been a really good citizen. You've never had a parking ticket. You serve in the church. You give 10% of your income. You feed the homeless, work at the soup kitchen. So your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. Therefore, you're good. Go, go on back to work. It's this that crazy. There would be mutiny because that just doesn't make sense. So if these four views out of these... Uh, first three, they don't really work. Nothing, reincarnation, scales of justice. What do we have left? You got the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is that? Well, that simply says that you and I have sinned. Romans three twenty three. We've sinned and come short of the glory of God. The payment for that is death. Six twenty three. Romans six twenty three. For the wages of sin is death. We couldn't pay it. So Romans five eight says, "Well, God demonstrates His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us." So how do we apply that? Gift of, a free gift of life to her. Well, Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that, that way, our debt of sin is paid. We have a right to live forever with our Heavenly Father. That's the gospel. I believe in the gospel. Somebody said the gospel can be summed up like this the gospel is that I'm far worse than I imagined. But I'm simultaneously more loved and accepted by God than I ever dared hope for because of Jesus' death for me. I can never earn God's acceptance and forgiveness no matter how much good I do. I receive forgiveness and acceptance because of Jesus' work on the cross. Why is this important? Because we don't obey God to earn his love. We already have it. He isn't able to love you any more than he does right now. We obey God because that's the only response to someone who loves us that much. You see, the reason we serve the Lord, the reason we follow him is is not to earn his love. We already have it. We serve him because that's the only response to someone who died for our sins. We're indebted to Him. Romans 5, 6 and 8 says, you see, at the right time, we were still powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. Now here's the point. Any faith or philosophy has to be able to answer the question of origin and destiny. Where do we come from? Where are we going? Where do we come from? What happens after we die? And no faith or philosophy answers that better than Christianity. This life only has meaning if it's attached to eternity. There are those that they are so sophisticated and so educated and most of the time so constipated that they don't believe in the afterlife why because they they haven't they haven't take their thought process and follow it through to its logical conclusion. What do I mean by that? It means if there's no afterlife, then nothing matters. Eventually, we're all going to die and the sun's going to burn out. We're all just going to go back to where we came from and all be forgotten. So if nothing matters, then actions don't count. People don't count. Kindness is irrelevant. It's all a waste because it's all going away. Well, that way of believing not very popular because it's completely hopeless. And to the atheism or to the atheist, if they reject or modify this in any way, then it's not really atheism. See, there's, there's atheists that want to reject God, but they still want to bring in love and purpose and meaning that Christianity provides. We've all heard atheists say, you know, I don't believe in absolute truth. That's why I don't believe in God. There's nothing, nothing absolute. Well, you can't. That's an absolute statement. So you can't can't have an absolute and not believe in absolute. People say, well, I don't believe in God because I don't believe in the virgin birth. But yet most of those people will say, but I believe in the virgin birth of a universe that it just nothing or something came from nothing. You can't have both. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If true of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And that's why we're here today because what we're doing is infinitely important. This life that we have chosen is infinitely important. Trusting in Jesus Christ is infinitely important. And we come to worship him and honor him because it's important. It's literally life and death. It's having an eternity in heaven or in eternity in hell. It's infinitely important. Let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter four, verse number one. It says, again, I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors. They have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive, but better both is the one who has never been born who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Now, there's a lot of people that feel that way. It'd be better not to bring anybody into this earth because this earth is so evil. And I recognize there's a lot of evil that's going on in the world. But here's the second question Solomon kind of throws out there. And that is, where is God in the injustices of the world? Where is God in the injustices of the world? Go to question two, please. Where's God in the injustices of the world? See, people struggle with this question most of the time because of a limited perspective. We don't have the full picture. I mean, it's like like kids when they ask a question. uh, Mom and Daddy, how how long until Christmas? 11 months. Oh, okay. They don't don't necessarily have a concept of time yet. How how, how long until my birthday? 11 months, two weeks. (laughs) Well, here is a question. Where is God in the injustices of the world? And I know it's because people are appalled at pain. People hate the evil that's in the world, but we have a limited perspective. A lot of people that don't believe in God will say, I don't believe in God because of the evil, because of the injustice, because of the pain and suffering. But that's a moral question. Where is God if there's evil and if there's suffering, because here's what we, we got to understand. If, if that's a moral question, then what's the standard of morality? Who decides what is right and what is wrong? Because you can't have a true standard of morality without God. Because what people want to do is they want to impose their standard of morality on a situation, but you can't have that if God is not in the mix because it's Your standard of morality is based upon what you believe. And that is very subjective. It's not objective. Here's what I mean by that. There are cultures. People will say, well, if God doesn't decide what is morality, then who does? Well, the culture does. Okay. There are some cultures that believe that it's right to treat your neighbors with respect and be kind to them. But there are other cultures that it's okay to eat your neighbors. It's called cannibalism. So what makes their culture wrong and your culture right? Well, it's just common sense. Well, whose sense? There's got to be a standard of morality somewhere. When you take God out, then it's your standard against somebody else's standard. And that changes with every single person. So you can't have this standard of morality. I'm not saying that it's not complex. I'm not saying that it's not challenging. But the more argument without God does not hold up. I knew of a woman who had been walked out on by her husband and left her with two children. And she's trying to figure out how to make ends meet. She's distraught. She starts praying to God, asking God to bring her husband back. And when her husband did not come back, he moved on with his life. She concluded that God did not exist because he seemed absent from her life. Now, it's a heartbreaking story. And it's important that when people share heartbreaks like that, that we don't respond with facts and ideas, but we respond with grace and love and compassion because behind every question is a questioner. We should listen, we should pray, and we should tell them that, hey, God's working behind the scenes. We don't know how God is working, but we know that he is working because Jesus told us in John 5, 17, my father's working and I'm working. So we know that God is working. We don't know exactly how he's working. So we can't give up. But here's the challenge that we face when we face somebody with a situation like this woman is that we pray and we want God to violate a person's will by making them do something that we think is right. It's frustrating, especially when by all outward appearances, it looks like it's right but yet we want God to violate a person's will and make them do what we think is right. The challenge is we don't know what God's doing behind the scenes. We don't know how he's working on that person. And God will never violate a person's ability to choose. You will always have that right. You will always have that ability. And why is that? Because love is what guides God's hand. We hear God is love. What does that mean? Well, Love guides God's hand because love is the supreme morality. Love is the supreme ethic. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is that true love, if it's real love, it cannot be forced and it cannot be manipulated. It has to be given freely. Otherwise, if God violates somebody's will and makes them do something against their will, it's like taking action figures in a child's play game and making them do what you want. Well, that's not love. That's forced behavior that makes us more mechanical and robots and makes God a dictator and God will not dictate. He will offer himself freely to each and every one of us and it's a gift for us to receive. That's why our hope is not in laws and legislation and policy changes. Our hope is in what Jesus did upon the cross of Calvary. Our hope is in his ability to forgive us of our sins and to forgive others of their sins. Our hope is in his soon return. So that when he returns. He will make this broken world right. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And last. Look at verse 4, 5 and 6. It says and I saw. That all toil and all achievement. Spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. Musicians come back. Notice this. I saw that all toil and achievement. I mean, hard work and everything we've achieved, it springs, it it comes from one person's envy of another. That means he's noticing that sometimes the motivation behind our work and going after things and achieving things is all because we just want to keep up with the Joneses. We we envy what somebody else has. So we're going to work. We're going to work. We're going to work. We're going to achieve. We're going to climb the ladder because We want the car that that person has. We want the house that that person has. We want the status that that person has. That's what Solomon is saying. And he said, it's meaningless. Just going after things because you see that somebody else has it. And it seems to make them happy. I mean, they look really happy in all their selfies. And so I'm going to do what they're doing. It's meaningless. He goes on. Notice this in verse five. He says, fold fools, fold their hands and ruin themselves Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil, a chasing after the wind. Now I'll explain that in just a minute. Here's the third question though. Does my life have value? Does our life have value? Are we just here working and trying to keep up with the Joneses? Are we trying to have the car that somebody else has or the position that somebody else has or the fame that somebody else has or the followers that somebody else has? Or does my life really have value? Do I bring meaning to people around me? Do I make a difference here on this earth? Am I making a difference in this church? Am I making a difference in my community? Am I making a difference at school? Am I making a difference in my family? Solomon's asking, does my life have value? And he kind of concludes this portion of the story with a picture, a picture of a fool. And he said, fools fold their hands and come to ruin. A fool folds his hands and ruins himself, is what he's saying. The fool closes himself off from everybody else and ends up self-destructing. Now, sometimes the Bible doesn't give us both sides of the picture, but you have to assume that if the fool is closing himself off and not engaging with other people, not helping other people, then the wise person has his hands extended to help other people, to be a blessing to other people, to see what he can do to make his world a better place. That's the picture of the wise. The, the fool has his arms closed saying, no, no, I'm not helping anybody. I'm not, I'm not serving anybody. I'm not giving anything. Can I tell you that coming here to church, we fall into that same trap sometimes. We fall in the trap. Hey, we, I'm not, no, I'm not giving anything. I'm not giving my hard-earned money. I got bills of my own. I got stuff to do. No, I'm not serving in any ministry. I'm just here. Just preach, preach, just preach. Just sing a song. Sing a song. L.A., would you sing a song? I just came here to hear somebody sing a song. We close ourselves off and we want to be entertained. We want, to be, we want somebody to just tell us something that we haven't heard before. That, that, those are, that's the attitude. It's the same attitude. We close ourselves out. We don't want to engage. We don't want to help. We don't want to serve. We don't want to be a blessing. It's just, what what, what what you got for me today? That person, Solomon says, ends up ruining themselves, destroying themselves. And obviously, that's not what any of us want. Remember the reality TV chef, star, Anthony Bourdain? Just a few years ago took his own life. It was sad. It was tragic. But there was something that was posted around the time of his death that something that he had said. And he said this, he said, I was raised without religion. I don't believe in a higher power. I'm instinctively hostile to any kind of devotion. Certainty is my enemy You know, I'm all about doubt, questioning oneself and the nature of reality constantly. That was his take on life. That's his viewpoint on life. I don't believe in a higher power. I'm hostile to devotion. So he would be hostile to us being devoted to Jesus Christ. Certainty is my enemy, meaning nothing can be certain. I'm all about doubt. See, the tragedy of this statement is that, first of all, No one saw the pain where the pain where it was coming from. But the second thing is that is so obvious to me is that he's living his worldview certain that there is no certainty. Again, it's like being absolute that there can be no absolutes. You can't do that. They, they, They count each other out. So here's my point. What we believe matters. What we believe about God matters. What we believe about Jesus matters. What we believe about Jesus frames what we believe about ourselves. What we believe about ourselves impacts what we believe about other people. It's what gives value to our life. And because I believe in God, but because I believe in a higher power, because I believe he sent his son Jesus to die on this earth for me, it gives value to my life. And because I've chosen to live my life with an open hand, to extend my hand, to help other people, now my life has value because I have made somebody else's life better. I don't choose to close myself off. I don't choose to live just for me in my house. No, I want to help others. I want to serve others. I want to be a blessing to others. Then when you contrast Anthony Bourdain's view of life to the Apostle Paul, you know what the Apostle Paul said? In 2 Corinthians 4, 17, he says, for our light and momentary troubles, meaning the stuff that we're going through right now, it's achieving for us an eternal glory. It's creating in us something in eternity. And he said, that which it's creating in us or achieving in us, Far outweighs all the momentary troubles that we have right now. He's not, a, he's not saying there aren't troubles. He's not saying you're not going to have problems. He's not going to say you, you never have challenges. But what God achieves in us during those things far outweighs the problems that we face. And so he said, so because of that, he said, I fix my eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen which to Anthony Bourdain might seem like uncertainty. But this is what I know. What is unseen or what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I'm certain that there's a God. I'm certain that he sent his son, Jesus. And I'm certain that his sacrifice paid the price for my sins. And I'm certain that when I received his forgiveness in my life, that my sins were washed away. And I'm certain that he went away to prepare a place and he said he would come again i'm certain that he's coming again and he's coming again soon and i'm certain that those who have put their trust in jesus will be with him through all of eternity i may not see it with my eyes but i believe it in my heart and i live with that certainty and i would rather have that kind of certainty in my life than to live with the doubt that there's nothing out there for us that there's not a heaven and that there's not a hell So I'm going to live my life with certainty in Jesus Christ. And I hope that you will do the same.